The reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so about this time, ten years ago, uh, it was my, at the end of, of my semester and it was reading week. Right, so it's the week between Thanksgiving and final exams when all the students are supposed to be back on campus so they can go to the library and, and study and prepare for their final exams. So I was uh, in one of my, my friend's apartment on campus, and we were all in his living room, and there were four of us in there. And, um, you know, naturally, because it was a week before final exams, one of us was studying and three of us were playing video games. And that's more or less how the whole week went, right? One of us would study every single day, and the rest of us kind of just goofed off. We played games, we watched movies. Um, we treated it as like a week of relaxation before the final exams. And um, parents, you won't like me telling this, especially if your kid's in the room, but, but of, of the four of us, the guy who studied every day actually did the worst on his exams, and the three of us who didn't study, we did okay. Um, so I'm sorry, cover your children's ears or whatever you want to do. Uh, the truth is, though, that the three of us who, who didn't study that week, the reason we didn't study is that we knew the material. I mean, we'd been in the class all semester long. We'd, we'd paid attention. We learned the stuff when we were supposed to learn it. And so the week before the exams, we, we didn't have to sort of cram all of this knowledge into our heads on a few hours' notice and, and try and learn it before we went and took the test. And so the end result was that by the time we actually had to go and take those final exams, we were well rested. We'd gotten enough sleep the week before. We were okay. We weren't stressed out. And we did pretty well. And maybe you don't like my strategy of studying, but I will point out I got into college and I got into grad school, so it worked out pretty well. Um, or the schools have low standards, whichever one you want to. And as I was thinking about that, I realized, you know, between, between like elementary school and middle school and high school and college and seminary, I, was, I spent 21 consecutive years in school, which makes me, of course, super smart. Um, and in all that time, in all those 21 years, I don't actually recall ever really studying for a test. And of course, you know, when you're, when you're really little, right, that's just not necessary, right? No no first grader studies for a test, and if they do, make them stop their child. But, but by the time I got to the point where that was actually a thing people were doing, it, it really, I, I just kind of felt like, you know, if, if I don't know it by now, I'm not going to learn it before the test. So why should I stress out and spend all this time studying? Um, and as proof of my genius, 
there's actually research now that confirms that. If you, if you don't know the material by the time the test is coming around, studying actually really doesn't benefit you all that much. You can't learn it that quickly if you don't already know it. In other words, there's really not much benefit to those big marathon study sessions right before our final exam because you either know the material or you don't. What it might do for some of you is it might confirm that you know it and maybe put your mind at ease a little bit. But if you don't know it, you aren't going to learn it right then. The only way to learn this kind of stuff is actually to spend the entire time you're taking that class learning it so that by the time those exams roll around, you are prepared and you have been prepared. And see, then you don't have to scramble to try and study and make yourself feel like you know the stuff. You already know it, and you know that you know it, and you can relax and, and be prepared for the exam without stressing yourself out all the time. So, the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> Mark is a, an interesting gospel because Mark and, and Luke also are not written by disciples of Jesus, right? Matthew and John are Jesus' disciples. What they write in their gospel is their own eyewitness account of what they saw firsthand as they followed Jesus around. Um, Mark was not one of his disciples. Mark is actually Peter's disciple. So the, the gospel of Mark is, what Mark did is as he followed Peter around doing his ministry after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter would, of course, tell people the things that he saw, and Mark would just write it down as he followed him. So the gospel of Mark is all of the stories of the gospel from Peter's point of view. And the reason we, it's important to mention that is that this, this, these stories are eyewitness accounts, and we can, in fact, trace them historically to the people who saw them firsthand. And, and the fascinating thing is there are enough ancient copies of these documents that we actually know that they have survived 2,000 years unchanged. They've been preserved and accurately communicated to us. These stories are real, firsthand eyewitness accounts of the events of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. It's important to remember that as we read them. But Peter, for some reason, decides it's actually not important to talk about the birth of Jesus. His gospel has no mention of, of Jesus' birth whatsoever. It starts right in on, on John the Baptist and then moves straight into Jesus' baptism and goes on to his ministry. He cuts out that part about Jesus being born altogether, which is weird. All the other gospels have it. Peter doesn't think it matters that much. So Peter starts with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is, you know, he's, he's spent his whole life since he was old enough to leave the home out in the wilderness. So by the time he, he, he comes into the cities and the villages and the towns again and starts preaching and baptizing people, you know, he's, he's this weird dude who, who's wearing clothing made of camel hair, and he's been eating bugs and fruit and honey out in the wilderness all his life. And he's, probably, he's got long, unwashed... He's basically a dirty, smelly hippie. I mean, he is the guy who you see on the street corner who clearly hasn't bathed in 20 years yelling, repent, the end is near. Because um, he literally hasn't bathed in 20 years. And he is actually at times yelling, repent, because Jesus is coming and you're all in deep trouble. Uh, <laughs> he looks crazy. He smells bad. Right? He, he just does not look like the kind of person you'd ever want to listen to or talk to. And yet, huge crowds are coming to hear him talk and to be baptized by him in the River Jordan. Mark's Gospel quotes the book of Isaiah. And specifically, it quotes chapter 40. It quotes this, this passage. This is the longer version of it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, 
that her sin has been paid for and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So much of the Old Testament is the story of people waiting and waiting and waiting and trying to figure out how God is preparing them for what comes next. Even, even this particular quote from Isaiah is, is telling the people, it's okay, the wait is over. One day I'm going to fulfill all the promises I made. So prepare the way of the Lord. They wait and they wait and they wait. All the time they wait. And they're told over and over again, have patience and wait. And what we really see throughout all of these stories is, is that God is constantly at work in them, shaping them and molding them into the people who will be ready to receive the Messiah when he comes. In fact, from the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, to the beginning of the gospel, um, that's about a 400-year time gap. There are 400 years when God does not send a prophet to Israel to speak to them. When for all intents and purposes, God is silent to the people of Israel. He's given them the prophets. He's given them the law. He's given them the temple. He's brought them back into the promised land from their exile. And he says, okay, I've given you everything you need. Now you wait. For 400 years. And even John the Baptist's parents, by the way, had to wait almost, almost their entire adult lives to have a child. In fact, other Gospels record that it's in their old age that they have a child and they pray for it for, for decades until God finally comes, appears to them and sends an angel to them and says, you're going to have a baby. And, and Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, thinks that's so funny, he laughs out loud when the angel tells him that. And so the angel says, well, since you think it's so funny, you can't talk till the baby's born. And he's made to keep silent for nine months. And so then, on top of having to wait his entire life to have a child, he then can't tell anybody he's going to have a child until the baby comes. Which I'm sure his wife loved. And then, and then, when John is old enough, he leaves the house and goes out into the wilderness. Because in order to do the thing that God is calling him to do, he has to be ready. He has to prepare himself. You know, all throughout the Bible, the wilderness is both a literal and metaphorical place where people go to grow close to God. Sometimes it's just a metaphor and it refers to doing things in your life that will allow you to grow close to God, but sometimes it's quite literal, like when John the Baptist goes out there. And it all stems from the time when he made them wander the wilderness for 40 years before he would let them go in the promised land. All because they made it clear they were not yet ready to receive God's gift. And he says, okay, fine. We'll just take you around the desert for a while until you're ready. And for their entire history, the people of Israel have looked upon those 40 years of wandering the desert as the time when God shaped them into his people and taught them how to follow his will. 
And so all of the prophets and all the Old Testament books will constantly reference that as the way you draw close to God. You go to the wilderness, whether it's literal, whether it's a metaphor, you go to the wilderness. You go and you find a place of peace and quiet and maybe even a place of great hardship to go and draw close to God. So John lives his life in the wilderness, preparing himself to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. You know, he really only does that for, for a very short period of time, at most a year or two before he's executed. So he spends probably about 18 years out in the desert alone just getting ready for this one brief window of time when he's going to come and tell people to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. Can you imagine? And who knows if he knew just how short his ministry would be. But he knew how serious it would be and how important it would be. So what does he do to prepare the way of the Lord? He comes and he preaches a baptism of repentance of sins. Come and confess your sins and repent and be baptized and be forgiven. Not, not because God doesn't know what you did, but because you need to recognize just how much you are in need of the one who is coming. You need to recognize how far you have gone from the path that God put before you. And you need, you need to get rid of all this stuff and turn from it and embrace a new life if you are going to fully recognize who it is who is coming. So for John, preparing the way of the Lord, obviously he's not talking about literally preparing a, a road for God to walk on. He's talking about preparing the hearts of God's people to see their Savior, to recognize him, and to embrace him. That's his job. To help people prepare their hearts for their Savior. You know, the reason we, we celebrate Advent is because we believe that, that what we actually celebrate on, on Christmas Day is so, so important and so momentous that to, to only give it one day would actually be doing it a great injustice. And it's the same for Easter. It's why we have seasons that lead up to these days when we prepare ourselves to celebrate. Because to really fully grasp what it is we are celebrating on Christmas Eve as we come to worship here, we have to do some prep work. If all we do is, is go about our business as usual and then we show up on Christmas Eve to celebrate Christmas, we, we, we really are going to miss a lot of the point. So we created a whole season for it, Advent. A time of, of, of waiting and hope and peace and joy. And we are really meant to be preparing our hearts to welcome our Savior. Because you see, Christmas is not just about celebrating an event that happened 2,000 years ago. It is, it is something that points to the future reality, the return of Christ, the second coming, the day when he comes back, and all the promises of the gospel are finally fulfilled in their entirety. And that's a lot to take in. 
And in, in truth, we're supposed to spend our entire lives preparing the way of the Lord, preparing our hearts to receive him, to see what he's doing, to, to spread the kingdom of God here on earth. But that's hard to do. And, and having a distinct season each year to remind ourselves of that lays a solid foundation for us to build on. Reminds us each and every year that we are in fact supposed to be preparing for the coming of the Messiah even as we celebrate the last time he came. So this Advent, I'm, I'm inviting you to come out into the wilderness. Whatever that may be for your life, whatever it's going to look like for you to carve out some space where you can draw near to God. And that's going to be hard because, let's face it, this is the busiest and noisiest time of year, isn't it? You've got Christmas music playing everywhere. Sometimes in H-E-B, it's just the one song over and over and over again. And, and there's, you know, even visual noise, right? There's lights everywhere. There's decorations up everywhere. And I love Christmas decorations. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. There's a lot going on. And then on top of that, we're constantly being bombarded by different messages about how you should celebrate the holiday and what you should spend your money on and what gifts you should buy. And, and, and incidentally, who buys a car as a Christmas present? Come on. If, if you are one of those people, um, I have some requests. But you're constantly being hit with these messages. If you want to celebrate properly, you've got to buy, buy this kind of gift. If you want to celebrate, you need to make sure you have all the right food. And here's the way you should, should put it all together. And here's the way you should decorate. And here's who you should invite. And we have all these messages coming in at us. And, and, and then there's entire whole other ideas about the secular way to celebrate Christmas that have nothing to do with the birth of Christ, but still want to embrace the aspect of generosity and peace and joy. And I don't know where their peace and joy is coming from, but uh, they still want it, right? And in the midst of all of that, we're supposed to be preparing ourselves, drawing near to God to celebrate not only his birth, but his return. To remind ourselves that that the truth of the gospel transcends all of this. And it's so much better than all of this. You know, we, we, we celebrate peace and hope and joy and we, we embrace those as things that we are supposed to experience at this time of year. And the reality is that's pretty hard for a lot of us. And I wonder if the reason why so many of us have trouble actually feeling peace or joy or hope in the midst of, of the holiday season is because we are not trying to source those things from where they're really meant to come from. Maybe, maybe we've, we've kind of allowed ourselves to get drawn off course a bit. And maybe, maybe when we think of the holiday season, the first things that pop into our mind are the time spent with family and the, the great meals we'll share together and the Christmas parties and the decorations we all love and the music we all love and the, the family traditions we all have. Any of those are all great and wonderful things. But they will not satisfy us. When we talk about the, the, the candles, right, and the, the hope, the peace, the joy, these are meant to be things which are rooted in the promise of the gospel. We can feel those things and experience them no matter what else is going on in our lives precisely because we know that they are rooted in the promise that Jesus came once and he's coming back. Every mountain will be laid low and every valley will be raised up and the gruff ground will be made smooth. And God is calling us to prepare our hearts 
for his coming. So, we have to create that space for silence in our life. Carve out some time and some place where you can actually draw close to God by, by shutting out all the noise and all the competing messages and focus only on the simple fact that God is here, he's come before, he's coming back again, and all the promises he's made in the gospel have come true. That what we're really celebrating is not just a, a birthday party and it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's not a myth. It is the salvation for which Israel hoped for throughout all of its history and for which you and I are looking at the end of all things. So we can have peace and hope and joy. Even if it feels like the world around us is just descending into chaos. Even if we'll be celebrating this holiday without a loved one for the first time. Because we know that this transcends all of that. This is a greater truth. So I'm going to invite you as we go through the Advent season to prepare your hearts, prepare the way of the Lord. Carve out that wilderness for yourself and draw near to him so that when the time comes to actually celebrate the birth of Christ on Christmas Eve, you're not like a poor college student trying to cram an entire semester's worth of material into one night of study. You have been prepared and are ready, and you're going to grasp the full meaning of what it is we celebrate as we lift those candles high and sing Silent Night. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.